Well, congratulations on being here tonight. When, when they announced in Grace Today that we're beginning a survey of the book of Leviticus, I was afraid attendance would be a little bit sparse, you know, because let's be honest, the book of Leviticus intimidates a lot of people. Uh, if you've ever begun a, a project to read through the entire Bible in canonical order, Leviticus may be the place where your plan stalled. Uh, I think lots of people think that this book is tedious and somewhat repetitive and hard to derive a lot of practical wisdom from, but Leviticus really doesn't deserve that reputation. It's filled with symbolism and typology that is designed by the divine author to point us to Christ. And if Leviticus confuses you, try studying it alongside the New Testament book of Hebrews, because most of the symbolism and significance in this book is explained, or at least it's illuminated by Hebrews. Now, I have three Sunday nights to cover all of Leviticus, and that is literally an impossible task. And so, I'm going to start tonight by giving you just a basic outline of the whole book. Uh, that, that'll be our survey, okay? It'll take maybe 10 minutes. And uh, that will help you get in mind, I think, where we're going So if you try to write this down, use abbreviations and write quickly because I don't want to spend a lot of time just showing you the outline, but I do want to start there so that you can have some idea of the logical flow of this book in your head. There are seven points in my outline, and and I'll be as quick as possible. And let me be clear, this is not an outline for my message. This is an outline for the whole book, just to give you a bit of context to start with. Seven divisions in the book of Leviticus. Number one, chapters one through seven, which we'll cover tonight, deal with sacrifices. Chapters eight through ten, this is number two, chapters eight through ten deal with the priesthood. Chapters 11 through 17 are about purity, dietary laws, and uh, laws governing the treatment of leprosy and uncleanness and so on. So that, that would be point three, chapters 11 through 17. Point four, chapter 16, that whole chapter is about the Day of Atonement. Number five, chapters 17 through 22 are miscellaneous rules and regulations. These are laws that underscore the importance of holiness. This, this section is about holiness, sanctification. And these tend to be specific instructions, sometimes very detailed instructions, that illustrate the importance of holiness, separation from evil, among the people of God, Uh, chapters 17 through 20, and then chapters 21 and 22 apply the, the rules of holiness to the priests. So I've grouped all those together, chapters 17 through 22, that's division number five. And by the way, chapter 22 further details rules that are designed to stress the holiness of the sacrifices that are offered as well. So it comes right back to the sacrifices. But the theme that runs through and ties this section together, chapter 17 through 22, is holiness. Then division number six, chapter 23, deals with the Sabbath and the feast days. Seven annual feasts are described here, the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the first fruits followed then by Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. So seven feasts, all covered in one chapter. And then the remaining chapters, chapters 24 through 27, 
outlined some key civil laws that pertain especially to the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And so that's what this whole book is about. This is priestly law. That's why it's called Leviticus. It derives its name from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And the book of Leviticus is the most detailed biblical description of the Old Testament's sacrificial system. It starts by outlining five vital categories of sacrifice that were These are sacrifices to be brought to the tabernacle, and it overlays that, the the sacrificial instructions, is all overlaid and explained with a detailed catalog of ceremonial laws and restrictions. If you read the opening chapters of Leviticus, uh, your reaction, I think, is going to be, if, if you can visualize everything that it's requiring, your reaction is going to be this. You're going to say to yourself, This is a very difficult religion to maintain and adhere to faithfully. Nobody can really live up to all of the demands that are made by this system. And if you try to follow the Levitical laws meticulously, your religion is going to dominate how you live. It will determine where you live and what you do with your spare time, and it will have ramifications for virtually every moment of your life. And, of course, that was the point. But throughout the history of Old Testament Israel, there really never was any prolonged time when the Jewish nation kept these laws consistently across multiple generations. There was no extended period of time where these instructions were followed, but the entire nation continually wandered and backslid, and they were chronically careless with all of the things that Leviticus tells them to be meticulous about. Now, there were a few brief highlights in Old Testament history at the foot of Sinai in Moses' time, and when Solomon completed the building of the first temple, and then in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the scrolls of the law were rediscovered and read, and and people were enthusiastic about keeping these rules, but it didn't last very long, and there were just a few times like that when the Israelites would renew their vows to follow these laws— and all of the other laws that are outlined in the Pentateuch. And they did, of course, offer sacrifices and and observe feasts and keep the priesthood active through most of the Old Testament. But Israel, on the whole, never really thoroughly followed the Levitical laws as meticulously as the book of Leviticus requires. And in fact, the first major religious movement that took Leviticus more seriously were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees didn't even arise as a sect in Judaism until that time between the Old and New Testaments. And they were so zealous to adhere as strictly as possible to the extreme rigor of the law that they even added extra requirements to the laws that govern the Sabbath and ceremonial cleanness and tithing and separation from all that's unholy. But In the process of doing that, they managed to turn their religion into a system whose purpose was mainly to honor themselves rather than glorify God. You know, Jesus said of them, the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. But they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called rabbi by men. So 
despite all of their supposed concern for following all the ceremonial laws to the letter, the Pharisees actually missed the main point of this law. Now, what is the main purpose of the Levitical law? Well, it shows us how righteous God is and how utterly sinful we are. That's its design. It is designed to eliminate human pride and self-righteousness. And you understand this, right? The, the law was not given so that men could demonstrate what paragons of righteousness they are, because that would be a lie. But the law was given to reveal our sin and to remind us of it continually. And also, in the words of Romans seven thirteen, so that the, through the commandment, through the law, sin would be revealed as utterly sinful. And that's why the theme of sacrifice is both the starting point and the dominant theme in the book of Leviticus. And tonight we're going to start with that theme. I, I have, like I said, three Sunday nights t- tonight, next week, and then it's seminary graduation, I think. So we'll come back the week after that. So three nights total to spend in the book of Leviticus. And it obviously isn't going to be possible to cover much of this book verse by verse. So I'm, I'm just going to try to highlight the two dominant themes, which are sacrifice tonight and sanctification next week. And then in our third section, I think I'm going to take you to chapter 10 and look at the story of Nadab and Abihu, but I'm, I'm waffling on that. I might change my mind and before we get to that final message, so I'm just telling you my thoughts at the moment. I'm not making a promise. But the other possibility is that we'll look at chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. And there are strong reasons for us to go that way, because the Day of Atonement is actually given a prominent place at the center of the book of Leviticus. In fact, the whole reason the Levitical system is so carefully laid out and so meticulously detailed is that it is all designed to teach the people of God about atonement, (coughs) the necessity for atonement, and what the ramifications of sin are for sinners. You, You know that the first five books of Scripture Moses wrote, they constitute what we call the Pentateuch, because it's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Leviticus is the center book of the Pentateuch, and the instructions about the Day of Atonement, chapter 16, are at the center of Leviticus. And that's all fitting, because the subject of atonement is the spiritual and geographical center of the Pentateuch. And this is also the very heart of what the law aims to teach us, namely that sin requires atonement. You can't undo your sin by good works. It has to be atoned for, and the price of sin is death. So it's a price too high for us to pay for ourselves. And death is symbolized in Scripture by the literal shedding of blood. And therefore, the entire book of Leviticus is liberally sprinkled with blood, and as a matter of fact, the word blood appears 88 times in the book of Leviticus, just 32 times in just the first seven chapters alone. And the point of that is explained in what I would say is arguably the key verse of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 17:11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sin, for it is the blood that makes atonement. Now, you realize, I hope, that the book of Hebrews echoes that same truth. I mentioned that Hebrews illuminates the meaning of all of the symbolism that was built into 
Leviticus and the priestly and ceremonial system that it lays out. And the writer of Hebrews highlights the truth of Leviticus 17.11, that it's the blood that makes atonement. You remember, Leviticus 17.11, that's, that's the point it intends to get across, that it's the blood that's necessary for atonement. And Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So it it turns it into a negative statement and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the key to understanding Leviticus. It gives us graphic pictures of the price of atonement. Don't ever think that all of the blood and butchery that's built into the description of these five major sacrifices that we're going to talk about tonight, they all appear at the beginning of the book of, of Leviticus. Don't think that all that blood and butchery is merely some primitive expression of religious devotion that now needs to be relegated to the back pages of history because we live in a more sophisticated age. Don't think that way. That is what liberals and universalists and deists and all other flavors of the Socinian heresy claim. That's, that's really one of their central points. They want to get rid of this idea of blood atonement. They say the idea of blood sacrifice and propitiation the death of God's Son to satisfy His wrath. Those are crude ideas, they say, unsophisticated, unnecessarily harsh. And they say, you know, if God wants to forgive sin, He can just overlook it. He can just ignore it. He can say it doesn't matter. Let's forget about it. Because that is what they think forgiveness should be. And if you think about it, and some of them are actually so bold as to argue that Sin can either be forgiven or atoned for, but not both. They say, well, if you require a price to get forgiveness for your sin, then it's not really forgiveness, because if you forgive something, no payment needs to be made. And if you think about it, that is exactly the same foolish rationale of those today who are you know, clamoring for the forgiveness of billions of dollars in student loans. They say, just forgive it. Forget about it. Wipe it off the ledger. That's easy, right? But the problem is, someone does have to pay, or else the person to whom the debt is owed must absorb the loss, meaning, in effect, that the lender pays. But someone always has to pay. You can't erase a debt simply by declaring that it doesn't really exist. And one of the iron requirements of true justice is that someone must ultimately pay every outstanding debt. You can't eliminate that requirement and claim that true justice has been done. And since one of God's inviolable attributes is perfect justice, he must require payment for the moral debt of sin. That's why Scripture says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Someone has to pay the price of every single sin that was ever committed And the price of sin is high, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Authentic justice means that sin must be paid the wage that's due. And furthermore, the life of the flesh is in the blood, according to that key verse, Leviticus 17.11. So if the wages of sin is death and, and the life of the flesh is in the blood, then blood must be shed if sin is to be paid for. Again, Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
And all of that unpacks the key verse of Leviticus. Listen again to that key verse, Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, God says, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the shedding of blood is, is literally the visible demonstration of life being poured out. Bloodshed with butchery is therefore the most visually graphic display of the wages of sin. You want to you put on display what the wages of sin looks like? Bloodshed and butchery. And that is what distinguished the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was bloody, horrifically so. And it was such a complex, labor-intensive, and costly ordeal that when you read the details, as we are about to do, you're going to wonder how this could possibly have been done in a nation with some two million people, which means more than a million families always needing to offer regular, repeated sacrifices. But just one place to do it, at the tabernacle. In fact, when I, when I first read this passage and saw the complexities of the sacrificial system, that is exactly what I wanted an answer to. How, how did the Levites work out the logistics of so many sacrifices and so much blood and so many ashes and, and so much cleaning to do when the workday is over? I think about these things, you know. And the answer, of course, is that it was nonstop hard work and the results were probably as unpleasant as you would imagine. I found a few places in Scripture that affirm the size of the temple operation, and they explain in broad terms how it was done. For example, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, 1 Kings 8, verse 62 says this, Now the king and all Israel with him were offering sacrifices before Yahweh, and Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to Yahweh, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of Yahweh. That's a lot of livestock, right? And it says, on this, this is verse 64, On the same day the king set apart as holy the middle of the court that was before the house of Yahweh, that's the area in front of the entryway to the temple, because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings, for the bronze altar that was before Yahweh was too small to hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. Which, in other words, to quote the great Puritan commentator Matthew Poole, the brazen author, he says, was not sufficient. Here, therefore, Solomon suddenly reared up several more altars, which after this solemnity, after this ceremony, they were demolished. Now, that was, that was undoubtedly done whenever it was necessary. They would just set up extra altars to handle all of those sacrifices, even in the days of the tabernacle before the temple was built, to accommodate all the worshipers who would come for the feast days and so on, when the crowds were coming to sacrifice were just too large to be served by a single altar. They had to set up extra ones, and they were doing it nonstop, all over the place. However, there is every evidence in Scripture that the Israelites as a nation were actually more lax in their observance of the sacrificial laws than they should have been. And so the temple wasn't always as busy as you might imagine because 
Like I said at the outset, they weren't usually following these laws meticulously. They were of the same spirit as too many of today's evangelicals, you know, who, who rather than giving regularly on the first day of the week, like the New Testament pattern tells us, they make their offerings maybe at Easter or Christmas or just sporadically and inconsistency, in, inconsistently. And that's how Old Testament sacrifices were done in practice as well. It wasn't good. But you see, in fact, evidence of how low temple service had become in 1 Samuel 2 during, you remember the life of Eli, whose sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were serving as priests, but these guys were low-life incompetence. Scripture says this about them, 1 Samuel 2.12, now the sons of Eli were vile men. They did not know Yahweh. And the Bible's description of worship at the tabernacle in, in that era doesn't sound like these two guys stayed very busy offering sacrifices. Second Samuel 2.22 says they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So there's more shenanigans going on there than offerings. But even in the best of eras, Israel's spiritual ups and downs, if they followed the instructions in Leviticus, if people followed those instructions, there was nothing simple or stately or visually attractive about the Hebrew sacrificial system, and there was certainly nothing sterile or sanitary about the process. It was gruesome in the extreme. And so let's read about it in our text. And first, here's just a little bit of context. Leviticus is written 1,500 years or so before the birth of Christ. So this is ancient text by the time Christ came along. The setting in chapter 1 is the doorway to the tabernacle when it was first completed. This is the completion of the original tabernacle. And Leviticus 1 actually takes up right where Exodus 40 had left off. So, so the tabernacle is complete. Exodus 40 says several times that everything in the building of the tabernacle was done just as Yahweh commanded Moses. <clears throat> so inaugural sacrifices are ready to be offered. And Leviticus 1 starts with these words. Then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and then everything that follows that from verse 2 all the way through chapter 5, verse 13, everything there, is, these are words of instruction that God is giving to Moses to pass on to the sons of Israel. And in fact, the only exception to that are just a few words in Leviticus 4, verses 1 and 2, where the narrator tells us for a second time that Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel. And then he resumes with the words, Moses is commissioned by God to deliver verbatim to the Israelites. And every word here is about the required sacrifices, several chapters. <clears throat> and then, starting in uh, Leviticus 5.14, going all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, we have God's words to Moses with some instructions about the guilt offering, and then in chapter 6, verse 9 through 7.36, just two verses before the end of chapter 7. These, again, are words from God that Moses is supposed to deliver to the Israelite nation verbatim. And so all of this consists of detailed instructions on how to administer the sacrifices. It's a huge section with detailed instructions about sacrificing. So that is our text. That's what it covers. It covers seven chapters. There's no way I can read it all to you 
But nevertheless, I, I do want to read it to you. I want to read part of it to you. So I'm going to start at the beginning. And as I read aloud, I think you'll appreciate what I mean when I say the imagery this evokes in your mind is really hard to process without being repulsed and revolted. In fact, when I, when I was starting my preparation for this series on Leviticus, I actually put the audio version of Scripture on the sound system in my car so I could listen to these chapters while I drove. And frankly, it was hard to hear this and drive at the same time. In fact, trigger warning, if you are a sensitive soul, you might feel a wave of nausea when you hear this text. And, and understand, that is the divine design in the sacrificial system itself. It's not supposed to be beautiful. It portrays the hideous sinfulness of sin. Remember, Romans 7.13 says, these laws were given precisely so that sin might become exceedingly sinful. And the wages of sin is inflexibly harsh because sin itself is such an abominable crime against the holiness of a perfectly righteous God. And so you will see a picture of that truth in these sacrifices as I read it to you. So Leviticus 1, I already read the first verse and a half. I'll pick it up where I left off in verse 2. This is God speaking. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man from among you brings an offering near to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of your flock If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall bring it near a male without blemish. He shall bring it near to the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make an atonement on his behalf. Then he, this is the worshiper, shall slaughter the young bull before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring near the blood... And splash the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water... And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall bring near a male without blemish, and he shall slaughter it on the side of the altar northward before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood around on the altar." He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall bring all of it near and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. Now, that's just the first of five offerings that are enumerated in these seven chapters. And notice it's called a burnt offering. That's its actual title. This is the burnt offering. And in this case, the, uh, the animal is butchered and burnt. It's cut into pieces and washed by the person who's making the offering, not the priest. This is the worshiper that does some of the really hard lifting here. The priest's part is to gather the blood, all of it, and sprinkle it or 
Splash it, basically, is what our text says. Splash it around on the altar. And the priest also lays the animal parts in order on the altar so that they will all burn efficiently. And by the way, this chapter then goes on to make provision for people who were too poor to bring an animal from the herd, a sheep or the, the first one is basically a bull, a small bull. The person who's too poor to do that could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon, and even the bird sacrifice was designed to be pretty gruesome. Verse 15, the priest shall bring the bird near to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in the smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it, this is the bird, tear it by the wings, but not separate it. In fact, so he he tears it, but not totally in half. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. This is a burnt offering. Now, I don't know about you, but all of the blood in those descriptions, that's the thing that stands out most in my mind. Because the blood is is deliberately splashed on the sides of the altar. And I can't picture that in any way that is not both macabre and messy. And also, you've undoubtedly walked through the, a butcher shop or the butcher section at the grocery store, and you know, even without all the blood splashed around on the floor, it's not what you'd call a fresh fragrance, right? It would require rigorous daily cleaning just to keep the temple area livable. And the odor would be mitigated maybe somewhat by the burning of the cleaned and butchered carcass on the fire, the smoke, which is what ascends to heaven. It would have the fragrance of a a barbecue. And I think it's interesting that even the Almighty, even God, acknowledges that barbecue smoke smells awesome. Because verse 13 says, The priest offers up the animal in smoke on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. Now, the smoke is what ascends to heaven. So that that is what goes up to God. And that's the form in which the burnt offering, every bit of this animal, bone and flesh alike, is reduced to smoke, which naturally ascends to heaven. But at the ground level, a whiff of that smoke maybe is a welcome relief for a second or so, but it couldn't possibly completely eliminate the fetid horrors and the odor of death from all of these bloody sacrifices. In fact, notice, for those bird offerings, and there would have been many of those, the priest was required, verse 16, to take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Now, I wasn't sure what that meant, and so I looked up crop in the dictionary. Here's what it says. The crop is a pouch-like enlargement of the gullet of many birds in which food is stored and prepared for digestion. So it's a mess, right? And the priest flings that mess into the pile of ashes that's left from the sacrifices of all of those herd animals. So you've got a pile, basically, of blood and bird guts and ongoing animal slaughter. It's a busy scene at the temple, and I'm sure if, instead of just hearing a description of it, if you could actually see it and smell it and hear the sounds for real with all of your senses working, 
all of the commotion and all of the smells and all of the blood-soaked images would offend your delicate sensitivities. And that's what it was supposed to do. It was a depiction and a reminder of the awfulness of sin. It was a taste of the abhorrence God has himself toward our sin. And it was supposed to shock and awaken a sense of moral outrage at sin and the consequences of sin, and thereby deepen and prolong a conscious sense of repentance on the part of the worshiper, who, after all, is signifying atonement that he needs for his own sin. And the shedding of all that blood was the price of atonement, or better yet, It was a representation of what sin costs, because the fact that these sacrifices had to be offered day after day with no end in sight was a daily reminder to the people that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't really take away sin. And so while these sacrifices nonstop signified God's willingness to forgive sins, they weren't truly efficacious for the removal of guilt, and everybody could see that, or they should have. But there wasn't even just one kind of offering. The burnt offering is merely the first in a series of five offerings that are described in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. So I want to walk you through these early chapters and look at the distinctive features of each of these offerings. Five Levitical offerings, and each one has a unique lesson to teach. Each has a specific connection with Christ... And so let's deal with them one at a time. The first is the one we've already read about, the burnt offering. Now, this was, as you know, uh, either a herd animal or if you were someone who owned no flocks or herds, it could be a bird. And the animal could be then either a bullock, a goat, or a lamb. It had to be a prime animal with no spot or blemish, specifically, verse 10, a male without blemish. And this signified the need for a perfect victim and and one that was not in any way damaged or corrupt. If you offered a fowl, it had to be either a turtle dove or a young pigeon. Those were birds that symbolized harmlessness and innocence. The Israelites in the Old Testament didn't, I don't think, grasp this yet, but that was a representation of the utter perfection of the one sinless, perfect person, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately become the one true and efficacious offering for sin. When, in the words of Hebrews 9.14, he offered himself without blemish to God. And according to Hebrews 7.26, he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. And the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over again that the requirement for these sacrificial animals to be blemish-free was merely a depiction of the perfect sacrifice, the sinless Son of God, who offered one sacrifice for sin for all time and then sat down at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 10, 12. Now, these priests in the Levitical tabernacle could never sit down. If you can imagine the amount of work that would be required to offer nonstop sacrifices like that on a daily basis. It was hard to be a priest. This was grueling and gruesome work. And as we've seen in the burnt offering, the animal carcass was totally reduced to ashes. 
The only thing that was allotted to the priests that they could keep was the animal's skin, verse 8. And think about this. Burning a big carcass like that takes a lot of fire. I mean, if you're going to cremate even a person, it's usually done in an enclosed furnace with a very high heat. Here, they have an open altar, and they're burning a big animal, and that would require lots of wood and lots of work for a whole team of priests. But everything was offered to God. Unlike some of the other offerings, no one got to keep or eat any part of the burnt offering. All of it went to God in smoke, symbolically. So as a symbol of Christ, it pictured his total consecration to God. He gave everything, Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2.20, he gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2, he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We'll come back to that one. Titus 2, verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. All of those texts portray him in his atoning work, offering himself up like a burnt offering, holding nothing back, entirely goes to God. And and the verse we'll come back to, I said, Ephesians 5.2, it even says, he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, which borrows language directly from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 17, which describes this offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Yahweh. So that's the first one. Here's the second offering. This one takes all of chapter 2 to describe. So turn to chapter 2, and this one is the grain offering. This, by the way, is the only bloodless offering in this list of five. This one exception is, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. There is one offering that has no blood involved, and it's not an offering for atonement or expiation of sin, and so that's why it's bloodless. This offering symbolizes the consecration of the worshiper's own toil and labor to God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And the grain offering sort of symbolizes that principle. It consisted of a fine ground flour with oil and frankincense. Frankincense kind of surprised me because I know what it is. It's a, it's a fragrant tree gum that's actually made from the sap. Uh, I have some in my desk at the office. It's made from the sap of a certain species of fir trees, and it, it could be allowed to harden and dry and then ground into a powder, and the resulting powder was sometimes used in small amounts because it served as a spice-like ingredient to give fragrance to bread and cakes. And here, in this offering, the worshiper would mix the flour and the oil and throw in a dusting of frankincense, which made a a lump of unleavened dough. And the sacrifice could be offered in exactly that form as just a lump of dough, or it could be baked on a griddle to make a kind of flatbread or pancake. And then the grilled cake would be broken up, part of it would be offered to God, uh, and part of it would be kept by the priests. And leaven in these cakes was strictly forbidden. 
verse 11. <clears throat> in fact, I'm not going to read this chapter, or at least not most of it, but keep it open because you need to look at these verses. Verse 11 is the one that forbids leaven. The grain offering, though, is seasoned with salt, verse 13, and a handful of it was offered on the fire, and the rest of it went to the priests. Verse 10, the remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. And by the way, this comes up again in chapter 6, where it's given more instructions on what to do with the portion that went to the priest. So keep your finger in this chapter and turn over to chapter 6 for a second, because it was given to the priests because they were to eat from what was left over in the grain offering, but it was a sacred meal, and it was supposed to be treated with solemn reverence. Chapter 6, verse 14. Now, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall bring it near before Yahweh in front of the altar. Then one of them shall raise up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to Yahweh. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They shall eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. So this is a ceremonial meal. This is not in order to keep them, you know, supplied with food. This is a ceremonial meal. And then verse 17, it shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my offerings by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations from the offerings by fire to Yahweh. Whoever touches them will be set apart as holy. So again, this is a ceremonial meal, and it has great significance that they're eating part of an offering that was offered to God to honor him. There's a connection between this sacrifice, I think, and Christ's words in John 6:48, where he says, I am the bread of life. In John 6, 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so I believe this is a symbolic reference to the sacrifice that Christ would make because he is the living bread given to provide eternal life and sustenance for his people. And so this bloodless sacrifice pictures something other than the atonement and forgiveness of sins, but it is nevertheless, this is part of God, it's an integral part of of God's plan for the redemption of sinners. And like all of the other sacrifices, it's a picture of Christ who gave himself to provide life for those whose sins he atoned for. Now, the third offering in these chapters is the peace offering, and now we're back to bloody sacrifices. In fact, the remaining offerings here are all blood sacrifices, and this one symbolizes our reconciliation with God. One of the key benefits of the atoning work of Christ is it reconciles us to God. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we glory in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, Christ is the one true and perfect peace offering. This is clearly a symbol of him. Leviticus 3, verses 1 and 2. If his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he is offering it from the herd, whether male or female, without blemish, 
He shall bring it near before the face of Jehovah, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the opening of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood on the altar all around. So, even more blood is sprinkled on the altar. Think of this. The The sides of that altar are coated with blood put there by the priests. But again, it's the worshiper himself who is tasked with slaughtering the animal, and this is heavy work. You know, in an agrarian society, of course, it, it wasn't uncommon for people to know how to slaughter and dress an animal, and, and some careful knowledge of the process was absolutely necessary for the peace offering, because look at verse 3, and he shall bring near from the sacrifice of the peace offering a fire offering to Jehovah, the fat which covers the inward parts, all the fat on the inward parts, and the two kidneys, and the fat on them, on the loins, and the fatty lobe by the liver beside the kidneys he shall remove, and the sons of Aaron shall burn it as incense on the altar, on the burnt offering on the wood of the fire, a fire offering of a soothing fragrance to Jehovah. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings is from the flock, male or female, without blemish, he shall bring it near. So, Those are the instructions if you're offering an animal, verse 1, from the herd. That would be a cow or a bullock. Here in chapter 3, almost identical instructions are repeated meticulously three times. Verse 4, if he is bringing a sheep for his offering. Verse 12, if his offering is a goat. And although the instructions for what to do with each animal that it's named here, all those instructions are basically identical they're repeated in detail for each, each brand of animal. And notice again, three times in these instructions for the peace offering, the priests are told to sprinkle the blood on the altar all around. And we're in chapter 3. You see mention of the sprinkling of blood at the end of verse 2, verse 8, verse 13. And verse 13 adds that no one is to eat any fat or blood from this offering. In other words, the The blood is to be thrown all around the altar, sprinkled, and the fat is to be given to God completely. The sprinkling of the blood on the the altar, here's how that was usually done. They gathered a handful of branches of a plant called hyssop. Hyssop looks a lot like rosemary. You're familiar with that because it grows wild around here. It's a thin sort of wood-like branch with clusters of spiky leaves, and you take a group of hyssop branches like that, dip it in the basin of blood. Remember, this is a lot of blood. And you would shake that blood out against the altar and all around. So it wasn't just a few drops of blood that got sprinkled. We we use the word sprinkling, and you think this is like a Presbyterian baptism. No, it's more than that. And uh, they used all the blood so that the sprinkling wasn't just one and done either. They, they went on, they kept dipping the hyssop into the bucket of blood until the blood was all gone. Now, here's how much blood there was. You and me as humans have about 10 pints of blood in our bodies. The average animal brought for sacrifice would have at least 35 pints. That's four and a half gallons of animal blood per sacrifice. I'm told that large cows can actually have 10 gallons of blood. I've never measured it myself, but I looked it up from several sources, and 
and they weren't all in agreement, but no matter whose figures you go by, it's a very large volume of blood, multiple gallons for every animal that was sacrificed, and all of that blood was splashed on the altar. None of it was thrown out, you know, down the drain or whatever. It was all used to be splashed around on the altar and on everything else that was nearby. Don't get squeamish just yet. Offering number four is the sin offering. Now, turn to chapter 4. And notice what prompts the need for this offering, verse 2. If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which Yahweh has commanded not to be done, and he does any one of them, the anointed priest sins, or if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him bring near to Yahweh a bull from the herd without blemish as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were covenanted with God under this statute, if I was bound by this law, I would tremble because this notice is a prescription for how to respond to unintentional sin. If a person sins unintentionally, and I am doubtless guilty of unintentional sin every single day, I don't own enough cows to follow these instructions slavishly. And furthermore, if the animal here is supposed to be a bull, verse 3, and even if you had a herd of cattle, you're not going to want to keep too many bulls in the, in the mix. And so in some cases, according to verses 22 and 32, a goat or a lamb would suffice. And even then, there's a lot of blood involved in this sacrifice. Blood is sprinkled seven times, it says, in this case, by the finger of the priest in front of the sanctuary veil, verse 6. So that, relatively speaking, is just a small amount of blood. Seven times he flips blood uh, to, a, I guess, on the ground in front of the, the sanctuary veil. And then a finger dipped in blood, verse 7, is also put on the horns of the altar. And then the rest of the blood, and remember, this is seven, several gallons of, of blood, the rest of it is poured out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, verse 7. And then he takes the animal's fat from around the entrails, kidney, and loins. And I've seen cows butchered. That's a lot of fat. And he places it along with the animal's liver and kidneys on the altar of the burnt offering and lets the fire consume it. And the entire remaining parts of the animal, verse 11, the hide of the bull and its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, He shall bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out. That's where they would take to dispose of the ashes that resulted from all these sacrifices. And there he shall burn it on wood with fire. Now, notice, this sacrifice symbolizes the expiation of sin, the removal of the sinner's guilt. And it's clearly stated in the New Testament that this is a picture of Christ. Hebrews 13, 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, so it's a sin offering, their bodies are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. They're saying the place where Christ was crucified was outside the gates of Jerusalem. So, verse 13, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And also, Romans 8, 3, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. So he's a sin offering, Paul says, and it's interesting that he names this as something that Christ accomplished that Paul specifically says the law could not do to condemn sin, to, to actually deal with sin and get rid of it. The law could not do that because, Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down on the right hand of God. And Hebrews 10, 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's why we don't sacrifice animals. Christ's sacrifice put an end to the necessity of regular sin offerings forever because unlike the blood of bulls and goats, which was only a symbolic stopgap, didn't really do anything other than symbolize what was to come. But Christ's sacrifice on the cross took away sin forever for all of those who come to him by faith. One sacrifice, Scripture says, for sins for all time. That's the fourth of the sacrifices. Here's a fifth and final sacrifice in this group. And this one is kind of an adjunct to the sin offering. This one is the guilt offering. Leviticus 5, chapter 5. And the King James Version used the expression trespass offering. So in some older commentaries, you'll find that that's how they refer to this fifth sacrifice. They call it the trespass offering. But the Hebrew word here means guilt. And so nearly all of the modern translations, including the Legacy Standard Bible, refer to this as the guilt offering. And that's how I'm going to refer to it. Starting in verse 1, it says, if the person breaks an oath, or verse 2, touches any unclean thing, or verse 3, comes into contact with some kind of bodily uncleanness, or verse 4, he swears thoughtlessly, then verse 6, he shall also bring his guilt offering to Yahweh for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. Now notice, it calls it both a guilt offering and a sin offering, and this is an adjunct to the the other sin offering. So what's the different difference? This is a specific kind of sin offering. This one is intended to deal with the guilt that is incurred accidentally by thoughtless or unintentional sins and sins of omission and things like that. So say you're accidentally defiled by contact with a dead body or some other kind of uncleanness, or you speak carelessly, or you make a rash oath This offering acknowledged the very real guilt that is incurred by even our unintentional or ignorant sins. Hence, it's called guilt offering. It's similar to the sin offering. The the worshiper's duties and the priest's duties are given exactly the same as they are for the sin offering. It's all kind of handled the same way. There are a few differences, though. A sin offering could be made by the priest for the whole congregation. But the guilt offering is always limited to the individual whose guilt is being confessed. So you could offer a bull for a sin offering, but you couldn't offer a bull for the guilt offering. The the sin offering deals with the fact, you could look at it like this, the sin offering deals with the fact that we are sinners by nature. It's part of our nature, and that needs to be atoned for. The guilt offering atones for specific acts of sin. And like all of the others, this sacrifice is symbolic of what Christ accomplished by His atoning work. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, "...you, being dead in your 
transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. It's as if, what this passage is saying, as if Christ had a list of every individual transgression that every individual believer would ever commit, and he became the guilt offering for all of those individual sins. He took care of not just the guilt we have because we're sinners by nature, but also the guilt we incur every time we sin. And if you are a believer, born again and washed by the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 9.14 says, "...the blood of Christ..." who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is the lesson of what all of that blood and all of those sacrifices illustrated, that sin, though it's exceedingly sinful, under the government of God who is perfectly righteous, though he hates sin with an unwavering passion, and our sin is as bad as it could possibly be, he nevertheless will be fully and graciously forgiving of all of the sins of anyone who comes to him by Christ. Because Christ has done what all of those multitudes of sacrifices could never do. He put away sin forever for all who trust him as Savior and Lord. That is the gospel. That is the truth that these sacrifices and the entire book of Leviticus points to. We'll take it up again next time. Now let's pray. Father, we praise you for your perfect holiness. While we confess that we could never perform what the law requires of us, and we could never attain the righteousness that we need, but Christ did all of that for us, paying the price of our guilt, forgiving our sin, removing our guilt forever, and He covers us with His perfect righteousness. So empower us to live in a way that produces the fruit of that righteousness so that our Savior can be glorified in us, we pray in His name. Amen.